0: I have always felt greatly privileged to be the pastor of this congregation. I consider it an honor of which I am not worthy and a wonderful gift from our God. But I have never felt more privileged than I have over these past couple of weeks. Your outpouring of prayer, your offers of assistance, Your expressions of concern for Karen and for me and for our family have been overwhelming and humbling. And so on behalf of my entire family, I want to thank you for the way that you serve us and for affording me the opportunity to carry out the calling God has placed upon my life and to do so in a context where we are consistently and continually loved and affirmed and encouraged. I often talk <coughs> excuse me, to pastors who have lots of horror stories of being beat up and discarded by congregations. And while I seek to minister to those who have known that experience, I can never, never say I know what you're feeling because I've never experienced that. For over 33 years, You have done nothing but encourage and love us. We are profoundly, profoundly thankful. And I feel sorry for those who walk away from congregation because it lacks perfection, because they unwittingly walk away from help and hope and healing that is never found on the individual level, but always found within the body of Christ. So thank you for being the body of Christ to us. I'm back in the pulpit quickly for two reasons. One, I've got thousands of people through Alliance missions, literally in every time zone, praying for us, and I believe prayer changes things. Secondly, I'm back in the pulpit because I have that assurance that while my prayers for my daughter were not answered as I envisioned, they were answered. And so rather than watching her die over a period of 12 years in daily installments, I now know she's absent from the body but present with the Lord. And the night I learned of her death, as I laid down in bed, the Lord said, Rock, you've laid in this bed for 12 years, agonizing. Tonight I've got it. Okay, I'm going to have moments now, and then you'll just have to be patient. <laughs> but one thing I can say to you, over the past 12 years, I have refused to give the devil any play. Most of the crises that have occurred in my daughter's life occurred on Saturdays and Sundays. Go figure. But I refuse to give the devil any satisfaction and allow that to hinder me from declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this weekend will be no exception. So let's get back to the book of Acts. To a series about people who understood the eternity in their hearts. God's word often says a great deal in just a few words, and the statement we're going to consider today is a classic example of that. In just seven words in our English translation, it effectively summarizes the core life-defining commitment of those who recognize the eternity God has placed in their hearts. And that's why I'm going to spend two weeks, this weekend and next weekend, considering its implications. And as we do so, I want to first draw your attention to something that could be easily overlooked. The declaration was a community declaration. It wasn't just Peter who spoke these words because given what we know of Peter, I don't think Peter could have pulled it off entirely on his own. It was the declaration made by Peter and the other apostles. It was a group declaration, a community, Declaration And yet another reminder in the book of Acts that the boldness the Holy Spirit gives, the power the Holy Spirit gives, is given to the body of Christ, to the congregation. And it is best expressed and it is best sustained when we are living in community with other believers. Every core commitment of our faith requires that we be engaged in community if we're going to walk in it consistently. The statement we're going to look at is set in a context where we often find ourselves as believers, the context of opposition. The apostles had been arrested. They had been charged to keep quiet about the resurrection. And when they refused that option, they were immediately taken into custody. Then. In a scene more reminiscent of the resurrection than Shawshank Redemption, God sent an angel to just quietly lead them out, despite the presence of armed guards and a lockdown. And the next day, the embarrassed security forces located their missing prisoners. They weren't hiding. They were in the temple, preaching openly about the resurrection. They were quickly returned to the authorities where they were asked, why did you blatantly disregard the injunction of this court? And their succinct but powerful reply is found in Acts 5, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. I've entitled this weekend's teaching, The Passion of the Discerning Heart. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to preach and teach your word faithfully. By your Spirit, enable us to understand it thoroughly, or at least as much as we can where we are in this moment. And then help us to apply it. I pray this for the health of your people, and I pray this for the sake of those who need us to be on task in our mission. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together this morning, may the Lord be with you. Years ago, Karen and I were invited to participate in a young adult group discussion about marriage. Now, we weren't the young adults. The group was made up of young adults. We were the more experienced veterans. I like to think of it as more experience rather than just getting old. And predictably, I was asked to share a question that I anticipated. Somebody said, Pastor, what would you and Karen say has been the key to your enduring covenant? And hopefully to the surprise of no one, my response was a theological response. Because after all, from bedroom to boardroom, everything we do, is an expression of what we believe about God. Everything we do is an expression of our theology. Your theology may not be formal and codified, you may have never written it down, but you have thoughts about God, and your thoughts about God shape everything else. So the ultimate answers to all of life's questions are theological. So I offered that for Karen and for me, the key to the strength of our covenant and the sustaining nature of our covenant and the satisfaction we had found in covenant was rather simple. We were committed to obeying God. Now we didn't come to that commitment on our own. The Holy Spirit had given us discernment. That's a word I'm going to use a great deal this week and next. Discernment simply means an accurate grasp of spiritual reality. You recognize what's actually going on in the spiritual realm. And discernment is not arrived at naturally. It has to be gifted to us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had given us discernment. So as a result of that, Karen and I were convinced that obedience to a loving, all-powerful, all-wise God who always keeps his promises was in our best interest and would always produce more satisfying outcomes than submission to our often selfish, sinful, and frequently foolish impulses we were persuaded that obedience is the path to abundance. And as a result, bitterness, sustained anger, cruelty, emotional abandonment, unfaithfulness, de facto divorce, and actual divorce simply have never been options for us. Now, I don't want you to hear me suggesting that if you're divorced, you have disobeyed God. There are times, according to God's word, when divorce is necessary and it is permitted by God. So that's not what I'm saying. And I'm certainly not insinuating that passions like anger and bitterness never dropped by for a visit. (laughs) They have. And I like to tell people, like all couples, Karen and I have enjoyed moments of intense fellowship. That's Christianese for "gone at one another. (laughs) But we've never permitted evil passions to move into the guest room and take up permanent residence. Because we've always come back to that conviction. We must obey God. And that simple defining commitment has set us free to use our energies to attack problems rather than attack one another, because you only have so much energy, and if you use it attacking one another, you won't have enough to attack the problem. That commitment has led us to seek solutions rather than seek the exit. And as a result, after 44 years, our covenant is stronger than ever, and that despite the fact that our calling positions us for unrelenting spiritual attacks. Satan knows if he can strike down the shepherd, he scatters the sheep. That commitment has continued despite a host of disappointments and trials and premature deaths and heartaches. And that covenant has endured despite enormously different personalities. Why a winner like Karen married a loser like me must have been a mandate from God, that's all I can figure. But this isn't a teaching about marriage. It's a teaching about the fundamental commitment that has helped our covenant to endure and the fundamental commitment that transformed Peter and the apostles from fearful to fearless. That made them bold witnesses in the face of overt hostility and formidable threats. This is a teaching about the fundamental commitment that both you and I have to embrace if we're going to be bold witnesses in a culture that is tolerant of everything but God and his truth. And this is a teaching about the spirit-imparted revelations and recognitions that birth that commitment, that inform that commitment, that sustain that commitment. The commitment, again, is the commitment to obey God. And today, my central premise is this. Obedience to God is the passion of the discerning heart, the heart that knows what's going on. And those who recognize reality make it their foremost commitment, the commitment that guides all other commitments. Now, you don't need me to tell you that obedience to God has never been a popular subject. It was rejected before our ancestors drew their first breath, before human history. Because back in prehistory, a majestic angelic being by the name of Lucifer and a third of the angelic host of heaven shunned obedience to God in favor of two illusions, the illusion of self-sufficiency and self Rule. They fancied that they could do a better job of managing themselves and God's universe than God Himself could do. Then, at Lucifer's prompting, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, followed suit. They embraced the twin illusions. And I would call to your attention the fact that none of these rebels, not the angelic host, not Adam, not Eve, could blame their parents or their environment, because the rebellions occurred in heaven and in paradise. The rebellion had its genesis in their hearts. And that rebellion has continued throughout what we call human history. In fact, it wouldn't be a stretch to suggest that human history is largely the written record of the tragic residue of man's ongoing rebellion against God God. And just as Scripture prophesied, in our day that rebellion is gaining momentum. We live in what some are calling the era of the imperial self. Just a poetic way of saying our personal authority now trumps the authority of God. Our personal opinions and inclinations trump the commandments of God. Our will trumps the word of God. Man is is the measure of all things, not God. And in this context, many reject the idea of obeying God as a groundless, pre-scientific confidence in a mythical creature that enslaves the weak-minded and makes empty promises to people who are incapable of facing reality and accepting responsibility. Others would suggest that obedience to God is an evil delusion that men have concocted to somehow endorse their bigotry, their hatred, their greed, their injustice and war because all of those things have unfolded at the hands of people who claim to have been obeying God. And for some, the idea of obeying God feels demeaning, feels like a straitjacket, a constraint, It conjures up images of harsh control that would suffocate their freedom and rob them of their autonomy and individuality. And even among religious folks, the concept of obeying God may be a source of shame and guilt or the instigating of legalism. We're going to talk about that. But if scripture is to be believed, the primary reason that we resist obedience to God is our sin. That inborn drive towards the twin illusions of self-sufficiency and self-rule. We simply don't want anyone telling us what to do, even if that someone is God. And despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, we remain convinced that we know better and we can do better. That is, unless the Spirit has given us discernment. Unless the Spirit has opened the eyes of our understanding and liberated our senses and enlightened us. And when that happens, it changes everything. The discerning recognize that all that's good has its source in God. And all true knowledge of God is born out of obedience. That's such an important truth, I want you to read it with me. The discerning recognize all that's good has its source in God, and all true knowledge of God is born out of obedience. You see, the commandments of God are not tests whereby God finds out what's in you. God knew everything about you before he saved you, but he saved you anyhow you do not have the capacity to surprise God. He knows you. He doesn't need to test you. The commandments of God are God revealing himself in terms that we can relate to, in terms of human conduct. And when God gives a command, he's showing us something about who he is, and since we were created in his image, he's telling us what we were meant to be, what we were designed to to be. And so, if all good has its source in God, and the true knowledge of God is born out of obedience, obedience, rather than being intimidating, becomes inviting. And that's where today's story comes in. On the surface, it's a tale about boldness in mission. But none of that boldness would have been evidenced if if the apostles hadn't first made a line-in-the-sand commitment to obey God rather than men. And that, that commitment didn't unfold in a spiritual vacuum. The Spirit had given them some critical awareness. It was the passion of discerning hearts. The apostles had come to understand that Jesus' followers ordered their lives around love for God. And that love is expressed and enhanced in obedience. Expressed and enhanced in obedience. Now here's how Jesus put it in John 14. He said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Now, that seems like a rather straightforward statement. Easily interpreted. If you love me, you will obey my commands. But I'm here to tell you that passage is frequently misinterpreted and misunderstood and misapplied. And I've had testimonies to that effect already today following previous services. And here's why. Not because Jesus failed to speak clearly. He did speak clearly. Jesus always says what he means and means what he says. But the scripture is often misinterpreted because Satan has this nasty habit. He takes the words of God and he spins them. Some of you are nodding. You're either going to sleep or you agree with me. (laughs) He spins them in an attempt to give them a negative interpretation. He wants to use them to accuse us rather than affirm us, to discourage us rather than encourage us, to shame us rather than to sanctify us. And in this case, he likes to take this statement and make it an indictment. He wants you to hear Jesus saying, you say you love me, and yet this week you did fill in the blank. If you love me, you wouldn't have done that because, drum roll, Those who love me keep my commandments. So whenever you sing about, oh, how I love Jesus, it's bogus. That's what he does. He's good at it. He's been doing it for a long time. But you see, Jesus in that statement wasn't suggesting that flawed obedience indicates failed love. And to assume that is to fail at both love and obedience, and the devil knows that. See, let me, let me unpack that. The Bible makes it clear that despite our best intentions, believers still sin. John put it this way. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We're smoking something, see? Believers still sin, all believers, because we are saints under construction. He who began a good work in us is perfecting it, but ain't none of us perfected yet. And knowing that's the case, Satan wants to turn that reality to his advantage. He wants you to feel that your sins prove that you don't love God. He wants you to feel suffocating shame. But he doesn't want you to stop there. He wants you to do something religious. He wants you to go out and attempt to prove to God that you really do love him by increasing your performance. And making promises that you know you are not going to keep. He wants you to dive headfirst into the quicksand of legalism a demonic counterfeit of grace. Because Satan knows legalism is sin. It's nothing more than the twin illusions of self-sufficiency, I'll prove myself to God. Self-rule, I'll make myself worthy of his love and I'll win his love. Self-sufficiency and self-rule, rebellion, dressed up in religious clothing. It's the very thing Satan did. It's the very thing Adam and Eve did, only we dress it up in religious clothing and market it as deeper life. But salvation isn't making myself acceptable to God by my performance. I could never do that. Salvation is Jesus making me acceptable by his sacrifice, and he's already done that. So the discerning understand that legalism obeys God in the hopes of getting to heaven. But love obeys God because it's had a faint glimpse of heaven already. Because when you see Jesus, you're seeing heaven. Because heaven isn't primarily about golden streets that don't have potholes every spring. (laughs) Heaven is where Jesus is. And he is in you. We've all had a faint glimpse of heaven already. Love is convinced that God is who he says he is, that he'll do what he says he will do, so that obedience to him is in our very best interest. See, obeying God is ultimately one of the most selfish things we can do. But God invites us to be selfish, to do what is in our own best interest. And that's why the discerning make obedience their chief passion. Because they understand that the call to obey God isn't an ultimatum. Shape up or I'm going to whack you. It's an invitation. An invitation to a deeper experience of God's love. You see, God is best known when he's obeyed. Why? Why? Because every commandment reveals something about God's nature. So God is best known when God is obeyed. And the more God is known, the more you love him. And the more you love him, the more you want to obey him. And the more you obey him, the more you know about him. And the more you know about him, the more you love him. And the more you love him, the more you want to obey him. And the more you obey him, the more you learn about him. And the more you learn about them, the more you love them. Are you getting the pattern? Please do, because I don't want to keep on with this. (laughs) So when we disobey God, we don't lose our salvation. Jesus doesn't walk out on us. What we do is we forfeit an opportunity to know him better and to experience his love at a deeper, more liberating level. Uh, See, when you think about obedience that way, it's attractive rather than intimidating. It's liberating rather than inhibiting. And so what Jesus was saying is that those who love me are naturally going to seek to obey me because they understand it's in their own best interest. It sets them free and because they, they've got a glimpse of my heart. He wasn't saying we're gonna reach perfection in this life. Our best intentions notwithstanding, none of us follow Jesus perfectly. If you feel you do, we have a recovery group for you. <laughs> uh, you'll be the only person in the group, but... Uh, I, I heard a statement years ago that's so applicable here. A guy said a man or a woman can be passionately in love with music and still be a poor musician. Some of you are passionately in love with music, but you can't carry a tune in a bucket. But you can make a joyful noise unto the Lord. You can love music but be a poor musician. In the same way, you can love Jesus and sometimes be a poor disciple. It doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. See, here's the difference between disobedience on the part of the unbelieving and disobedience on the part of God's people. The unbelieving disobey God because they refuse to accept his perfection and believe in his promises. The believing disobey God because we often struggle to grasp God's perfection and believe in his promises. And there is a huge difference between refusing God and struggling to understand God. The truth is, God is mysterious. His ways are beyond our ways. If you could figure him out, he wouldn't be worthy of our time or our worship. We're always got to struggle to understand God. We're always got to struggle to understand his ways. We're always going to struggle to understand what he's up to in our hearts. But if we stay in the struggle, that's belief. Christians may know doubt. Doubt is the struggle of the faithful. But there's a huge difference between doubt and unbelief. And there's a huge difference between struggling and failing and refusal to even begin the journey with God or acknowledge him as God or honor him as God. You know, sometimes you see that bumper sticker. I don't particularly care for it. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And and I don't really care for it because it implies to the unbelievers that we get away with stuff and they don't. And there's more to Christianity than that, please. But the reality is you can love and struggle. The reality is, and I'm confident in saying this, those of you that love do struggle. But it doesn't mean you don't love. It just means you have his treasure in an earthen vessel. And some days you've got to feel the treasure. And some days you've got to feel the earthen vessel. But you keep putting one foot in front of another and you keep following Jesus. Persuaded we must obey God. So as I close this first installment, let me summarize what I've said thus far by suggesting that when God calls us to obedience, God doesn't desire total adherence to a set of rules. There's nothing motivating in that. God desires the total restoration of his people, and there's a lot of motivation in that. God doesn't want you to keep rules as a basis for his loving you. He wants to set you free because he already loves you. Nothing you do this week will cause God to love you more, and nothing you can do this week will cause God to love you less if you are in Christ, because God's love for you is based on your being in Christ, and Christ is consistent. Christ never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you are loved because you are in the unchanging Christ, you are loved no matter what changes happen in your life. It's not obeying rules, it's letting him set you free. And that's why the discerning make it their passion. Not their sideline, their passion. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are often a hot mess. In fact, we're all a hot mess. But we're so thankful you didn't walk out, you walked in. And Lord, sometimes we do struggle in the faith that we would never abandon but that we have difficulty living. But Father, we're thankful in those moments you don't desert us. And you don't sit angrily on the throne and say, well, obviously you don't love me, you're not obeying instead you keep graciously calling us to the obedience that helps you to know helps us to know you so that we can know ourselves and know life abundant so lord help us to look at obedience not as an intimidating ultimatum but as an awesome invitation And then help us to embrace it, knowing it is in our own best interest. Lord, when I obey, you gain nothing, but I gain everything. Help us to understand that. Give us discernment. And help us to be known as an assembly of people who must obey God. Not out of fear, but out of understanding. And then, Lord, give us that same boldness and that same power in a culture that mocks us but so desperately needs us to be faithful to the message. We can't do that on our own, but Spirit, you can, and we thank you ahead of time for what you are got to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.